Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Steve Crowley is the Executive VP of K2 Security Screening Group, also a former Assistant Administrator at the Transportation Security Agency at the TSA. And um, we want to talk about the changes that we've seen in aviation security since 9-11, the, uh, the improvements really in, in, in safety and security, and then the vulnerabilities that may still exist. So, Steve, thanks very much for joining us. I guess the changes are pretty clear um, to anyone over the age of like 30, right? Uh, because we, we've we all lived through it um, and remember the days before you had to take off your shoes. Now it's a lot more invasive, but it's not really that bad. Um, how 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 much have we seen in terms of improvements in, in, uh, in safety and security? Well, first, uh, Paul, Matt, thank you for having me on your show. Um, the aviation security uh, enterprise has come a long way since 9-11. Um, not only do we have better technology to look for and identify the explosives and weapons, but we also have better security tactics, techniques, and procedures. I mean, b- both of these things enhance our security posture. Let me give you some specific examples. Um, you know, as you mentioned, uh, back then we walked through metal, a simple metal detector. Um, now we have... Um, checkpoint x-rays, we have checkpoint uh, on-person body scanners, we have increased, well, we went from actually a a contracted security team 20 years ago to a professional TSA officer cadre of of 50,000 strong uh, people. Um, And now we have more law enforcement presence in uh, in the airports. We harden flight deck doors. We have air marshals. Kind of what I'm getting at, bottom line, is the aviation security enterprise has implemented a multi-tiered, multi-layered approach to security. We didn't have this 20 years ago. Steve, with 20 years of hindsight, you guys in the security screening business, was it almost, I mean, how did it happen, I guess? I mean, is it just that it was a different time and place and we didn't think about strengthening the doors and all that kind of stuff? Well, back then, if you remember, you know, anything that happened, to, pr- pretty much anything that happened with an airline um, had to do with uh, taking over the airline to get to, you know, hijacking one, yep. right, to get to another place. It was never really used, not, never, not really, it was never used as a weapon. Right. So 20 years ago, it's used as, it was used as a weapon. And so if you think about it, just hardening the cockpit door, you know, uh, they were able to get into the cockpit because they thought it was just a typical hijacking hey i have a knife i'm not going to hurt anybody just let me you know talk to, to the pilot yep and 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 that you know that changed obviously now we don't view it as hijacking anymore it's terrorism and it's uh you know we will always think of it as uh airplane as, as a weapon and never allow this to happen you know again well we haven't seen anything even remotely like that since um, September 11th, have we? I mean, I, I don't recall any reports of a plane being hijacked and then used as a weapon in the last 20 years. That, that is correct. And that is, and it is because of the aviation security enhancements that we have made. Like I said, the multi-layered, multi-tiered approach, um, because there were, there, there's not even attempts. There's a, there's, there were several attempts, uh, uh, probably less than five, um, to bring on an explosive. Um, but those are all failed, and since then we have not had not even an attempt. And again, that's because of what's in place today. 
how can technology, Steve, make you know this even safer? Again, it seems a little low tech to have to send you know get in line, take shoes off if you're not TSA pre-approved. It seems like there should just be some technology solution that would maybe speed up the process, make it less invasive. Yes. Yeah, so, so there are some changes that are happening again behind the scenes. You don't you don't necessarily see uh, some of them, but. Um, for one, uh, even you know about what ten years ago when they came out with pre-check, yep. um, being able to look at uh, at folks and put put folks that you're comfortable with aside so that you can actually focus on those folks that you don't know about the unknowns, that actually helps the process and go a little the the, the, the process to go a little faster efficient. But there are technologies that are that they're putting in place today. Actually, computed tomography uh, system called CT uh, at the checkpoint. It's kind of similar to, to the medical technology. Um, it's a 3D image technology that will allow you to kind of manipulate the bag as your, bag, your carry-on bag is going through the X-ray or CT system that you don't actually have to uh, have someone to take out things and, and move things around. You can actually digitally do that. So that becomes a more efficient process, as well as these, uh, what they're deploying is automa- automated screening lanes, which are uh, uh, state-of-the-art um, uh, conveyance systems, we'll call it, and that allows the, basically the, the bags to automatically be put into the, uh, the X-ray system or the CT system. The bins automatically come back. You can uh, more than one person can divest their stuff at the at the same time, so thus you don't have to wait for that person in front of you to finish. So it's things like that that do help the, the process along, and they are looking at other things to even become more and more efficient. You know, the old total recall of someone going through. A Total Recall movie where you saw yep. all Schwarzenegger going through. Well, we're not going to get down to the point of looking at you know bones and stuff like that. But the idea is to have the passenger continuously walk down this this uh, pathway where sensors are there looking at the individual. So we are moving in that direction, and that will happen in the, in the future. So I, first, I want to say there's a remake of Total Recall with Colin Farrell that got really bad reviews, but I thought it was amazing. <laughs> So I, I highly recommend uh, checking out the remake. And then I want to ask, are these technologies going to lead to um, an easier airport security? I mean, are we going to eventually leave our shoes on and maybe even carry liquids through? Yes. Yeah, so, so the the carrying liquid through, let me get that one first. So the mm-hmm. computer tomography system that's being deployed today and that has been uh, uh, started, we'll say, a year and a half ago for deployments, you can actually leave the liquids in because those, those systems can see that. So yes, uh, that'll help with that. Leaving uh, laptops in the bag, the CT system will help with that. Uh, leaving shoes on, they are integrating uh, some sensors within those walk walk through metal detectors as well as the on-body scanners to actually be able to leave shoes on. Um, will it always be that way? Where yeah, 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 like for the entire um, you know traveling public? No, my guess is you're, you'll still have to do some of those for those unknown high. Um, uh, the folks that need to be looked at more uh, more carefully than others, um, you always have that kind of uh, capability. Those technologies uh, will be able to support that um, one way or the other. They could will be able to do it with shoes on or with shoes off, as an example. Uh, but it won't have to be two separate technologies. Steve, where do you think there's still risk in the system, vulnerabilities in the system? Well, um, airports continuously conduct risk assessments and security uh, vulnerability assessments to identify, prioritize, and actually mitigate uh, what they find. We know that the U.S. aviation system is a um, high-value, high-priority target for bad actors. Um, And I like to say the bad actor only has to get it 
uh, right once. Yep. While TSA and the aviation security enterprise have to, you know, has to be able to get it right every time. So everybody still needs to, to remain vigilant. But today, um, not only do we have uh, do we have to be vigilant against that that conventional bad actor, you know, who carries the explosive or a weapon on board, but we have to also look at those asymmetric bad actors that are going after. Um, uh, the threat factors such as cyber threats or even the use of drones as weapons. So those things exist. And so the bottom line is we need to be five steps ahead of those bad actors if we want to secure the, uh, that aviation enterprise. All right, Steve, thanks very much for joining us. Steve Caroli there is Executive VP at the K2 Security Screening Group. Of course, as we mentioned, he's a former assistant administrator at the TSA as well and um, really has done so much uh, in security and in leadership. So really appreciate the time with you, Steve. Thanks very much uh, for your insights on this, um, well, tomorrow, I guess, the 20-year anniversary of 9-11 travel as we knew it changed almost overnight and uh, has become safer and more secure. So we appreciate it. This is Bloomberg. Let's talk a little bit uh, about um, the crypto space. Michael Cameron, the CEO of Skilling. And let's let's start with El Salvador and, and what happened the other day. You know, we saw um, the country adopt Bitcoin as, I guess, legal tender. And on the same day, we had a big drop in the price. Are the two things related, Michael? Hi, Matt. Thanks for having me. I, I do think they are related. I think it's a, a good old-fashioned buy the rumor, sell the news. I think some of the people looking for um, – there's a lot of people that like to link. You know, This drop must equate to something that happened. I think if you're looking for that, it's buy the rumor, sell the news, but also it was a bit of a stumbled rollout. And so I think some people thought it may cloud the, the, it, it may cloud the future for other countries to follow suit. What does it mean, Michael, for a company to adopt – for a country, I'm sorry, to adopt Bitcoin as legal tender. What does that really mean to you? I think it means that, I mean, the obvious case is that it means that they have to, that vendors and providers have to accept Bitcoin as a, as a, uh, an asset that they'll accept. And so that's, uh, that comes with a lot of uh, operational hurdles that they have to get over. And uh, that, 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 you know, its citizens have to adopt this and understand how to, how to use it and how to convert from dollars over to BTC and, and so on and so forth. So on a very basic level, it just means that uh, every vendor from a little kiosk selling phone top-ups to uh, you know a large purchase of a, a furniture or a car has to accept Bitcoin. What about um, skilling? You're a, a, a trading platform um, that tries to make trading, I guess, transparent and secure, and you deal in over 800 Forex um, uh, well, pair currency pairs. Does that include crypto? Yeah. So Skilling is a is a uh, FX and CFD broker. We deal we do deal in crypto. In fact, we're our leading provider of crypto. We have twenty seven crypto assets right now, which includes the big boys like Bitcoin and Ether, but also the more nascent cryptos like Dogecoin, Shiba Inu, and more. Well, how's it going? How's that going right now? I mean, is it still? Um, an incredibly hot sector. Bitcoin is trading for over $45,000 right now. It's still incredibly hot. It is, it is the product that, that, that customers want to trade. You know, we're, we, we find that um, more and more customers are just exclusively trading cryptocurrencies. Now, skilling it, it does attract 
Scaling is a really a relatively new fintech on the scene. We're only a few years old, and uh, we primarily attract a younger audience. But they and they almost exclusively dip their toe into crypto. Some of the older brokers still rely on a lot of customers that trade the, the kind of the traditional assets, you know, the the Dow and the S and P and gold and, and the fiat currencies. Um, but we are trying to push the envelope and just offer all the cryptocurrencies that that are making the news, making the headlines, and um, and it, it's still on fire. It's still all that people want to trade right now. You know, uh, Michael, there's still a lot of skepticism out there about Bitcoin and crypto in general. In fact, the Swedish central banker warned that Bitcoin could eventually collapse. How do you kind of frame that type of thinking as this market continues to develop? I think that that skepticism is is a little unfair. Uh, I think a better. I think that these the way comments like that I think are are, are going to be judged to be on the wrong side of history. So this cryptocurrencies have with every passing year there's more and more use cases for both blockchain but also cryptocurrencies. And so I feel like uh, when there's comments like uh, that denigrate cryptocurrencies and the use of blockchain, it, it, it's very short-sighted. Fiat currencies like the krona, like the Swiss franc. Um, are not um, they're not without volatility. I mean, just a few just a few Januarys back, um, a currency here in Europe dropped well appreciated forty percent. Um, so for all the naysayers that say crypto is 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 a scam or it's too volatile, uh, fiat currencies are not above that. European fiat currencies are not above that. And so I think I think it's here to stay. I think um, and I think comments like that aren't aren't going to help and are going to be judged to be on the wrong side of history. But we're going to clearly need more regulation, aren't we? I mean, you look at all the ripoffs going on in DeFi and um, the fact that it's almost expected by investors. Not that you trade those DeFi tokens also, um, but you see them. Yeah, yeah. There's more regulation coming, and I think that's, that's a good thing. For companies like Skilling, it's a very good thing. We, we, you know, we're highly regulated as it is. You know, we have a significant amount of you know, AML and KYC checks we put customers through. We don't accept cryptocurrencies right now as uh, for deposits, but um, it's something we're, we're obviously we're eyeing, and we know that all of our competitors and most brokerages are looking into this. And there are leading companies out there that do the what they call KYT tracking, so they, you can track the the genesis of a of a cryptocurrency transaction. You can track it very far back, and you can see, you know, where where it's been used. So um, I think the regulation is building, uh, and, I, and companies like ours welcome it. Hey, Michael, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Fascinating uh, store here developing. So uh, just we will obviously uh, keep you in the loop as, as we need more discussion going forward. Michael Cameron, CEO of Skilling. If I'm a credit investor, where do I go for yield? A lot of folks are looking at the private credit market, and we've got an expert in that market. John Klein, President and Chief Operating Officer of New Mountain Finance Corporation. John, thanks so much for joining us here. Just give us, you know, for those folks that, that aren't that, you know, um, you know, knowledgeable about the private credit market, just frame for us, what is the private credit market that you guys play in? Well, thanks for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. The private credit market, uh, at least the way we think about it, is a market that finances leverage buyouts for um, uh, for, for financial sponsors 
uh, across a, a, a big continuum of size. So we're providing capital to effectuate leverage buyouts. And historically, we've done so uh, on, in the middle market, but more and more private credit is moving up market and, and um, executing billion-dollar tranches to effectuate these larger buyouts. So what kind of return are we talking about? So private credit, uh, the, the pitch across the industry to investors is essentially in private credit, you can get uh, consistent 7 to 10% returns, um, uh, essentially with floating rate uh, tranches, so you can protect against inflation and, and changes in the, 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 the general macro environment. And uh, across the industry, we, we've done a good job uh, achieving returns that are better than the high-yield market and the syndicated market, and uh, that continues today. So. It's interesting, John. I mean, you know, Matt and I, we, we talk to a lot of folks who in the private equity space, and, and we're just amazed by how much capital and is, is in the private equity space looking for deals. Give us a sense of kind of the deal flow that you guys are seeing right now. Right now, we've never seen deal flow as high as we see it, see it today. Uh, here at New Mountain, we have a private equity business, and we also have the credit business, which I'm in charge of. We manage about uh, over $20 billion in private equity, $7 billion in credit. And uh, I'll tell you, the, the, the Zoom environment that we have today has, has really uh, created tremendous deal velocity, uh, tremendous efficiencies, and uh, there are a tremendous amount of players with a lot of capital to put to work. And essentially, there's a, a major competition to, to buy all the best assets. And so uh, we've never seen anything like it. And I think that is driven by the, the, the large amount of fundraising that we've seen in private equity. And uh, for my seat, we're just trying to keep up with our clients to raise money fast enough to, to, to suit their needs and to be able to finance uh, the bigger and bigger buyouts that, that our clients are pursuing. So if I'm a high net worth individual or a family office, how long do I have to commit funds and, and what kind of risk am I taking? Well, across pri uh, private credit, there are a lot of different structures. Here at New Mountain, we do manage a public BDC, so you can buy our stock, uh, buy and sell our stock on a, a, a daily basis uh, very easily, so you get that daily li liquidity, and you can have access to a diversified group of, of, uh, of, of private loans that we make to our sponsor clients. There are some structures um, that, that are out there where, as a high net worth individual or an institutional investor, you have to commit to the fund or the asset class over many years. So, uh, big picture, I'd say uh, there are different structures for different time horizons, and it's possible to get access to private credit in a lot of different ways with a lot of different time horizons. John, earlier in my career, I was at the Chase Manhattan Bank and the, the corporate finance team, and we were lending money to the media sector, which was a great cash-flowing uh, industry and supportive of you know a, a good level of debt. What are some of the sectors that you guys like from a private credit perspective? Here at New Mountain, we're really focused on what we refer to as defensive growth industries. So we're trying to lend to businesses that we think are going to do well, no matter what the economic environment looks like. Uh, and I think our sponsor clients are, are geared the same way. Uh, so we're looking at software, technology-enabled business services, subscription data companies, uh, life sciences, specialty materials, uh, healthcare. Uh, I could go on and on, but it's a lot of niches that have really predictable uh, recurring uh, revenue models that uh, that we can take comfort in as a lender. What are some of the biggest deals you've been involved in? Can you tell us any of the deal details? Well, I, I can give you a, a bunch of deals. It's pretty amazing. Before before COVID, I'd, I'd say the biggest deals would barely touch a billion dollars in the private credit market. 
and today we're we're uh, we're financing deals as small as a hundred million and as big as three billion, where we're, we'd be a member of a of a club of lenders that finance those bigger deals. Uh, but but really, post COVID, there's been an explosion of larger deals. Uh, you can think about Stamps.com, uh, which is a software business, Affordable Care, which is a dentistry business. Galway, an insurance broker, um, Novalon Holdings, which has been announced that's a take private led by Norik and Insight. And these are all multi-billion dollar deals uh, that, uh, that, that, are, that are really popping up every day. So I'd, I'd need all my hands and toes to talk about the billion dollar deals in the private credit markets that have occurred over the last, uh, over the last two months even. John, just about 30 seconds. Talk to us about credit quality out there. So I, th- I think credit quality is really good as long as you stick to, to the sectors that have done well through COVID. So, um, and, and essentially, I think it's a lot of the sectors that we focus on. Our book has been very strong through COVID. And we, where we worry about credit quality is really uh, companies that are, uh, f- uh, that are exposed to secular change, supply chain disruption, which I'm sure you're talking a lot about on your show, labor shortages. So we really, we really stay away from uh, you know, industries that, that, that could be exposed to those, th- those negative trends. I think about automotive, retail, travel, and leisure, heavy, heavy industrials, uh, consumer yeah. discretionary, of course, you know, energy. So I really think Got those it. are the, the industries that good, good lenders avoid. John Klein, President, Chief Operating Officer at New Mountain Finance Corporation. Appreciate your time today. This is Bloomberg. Now, let's get over to Don Steinberger. We've been been anxiously awaiting the CEO of Agecroft Partners, and he joins us now out of Richmond, Virginia. Don, great to have you on the program. Thanks so much for joining us. You say um, this is the greatest asset-raising environment in the history of hedge funds, or at least you have a paper out um, with that title. What do you mean by that, in the history of hedge fund industry, this is the best? Well, I've been in the institutional investment management business for 36 years, and uh, there are three things that drive flows to hedge funds, and all of those are are pointing to me to be um, uh, very strong indicators that 2000. Uh, 22 will be the best environment to raise money in the hedge fund industry. The first is you're just starting with a large asset base. You know, the hedge fund industry at the end of the second quarter was at $4.3 trillion, up from $600 billion at the end of the turn of the century. It's grown every year but three this century. Before this year, flows to the hedge fund industry uh, had been static. Most of the growth of the industry had come from performance. But a lot of that has changed. You've seen very strong flows into the hedge fund industry this year. And uh, three things are resulting in this strong flows. One is just the performance of the hedge fund industry has been very good over the past two years. Most investors are investing in hedge funds to protect on the downside and add diversification. And they were very happy with performance. First quarter of last year when the market sold off, they were happy with the full year, up 10%. And the first six months of this year, Hedge funds are up 10%, which was the best start of the year since 1999. In addition to that, when you look at flows from hedge fund industries, they tend to be dominated by large institutional investors. And a lot of large institutional investors have allocations to fixed income that are you know, expected to return in the mid-2% range. And a number of these large institutional investors are beginning to shift money away from fixed income into uncorrelated uh, hedge fund strategies, and some of them are also 
including hedge fund strategies in their fixed income portfolio, like direct lending, distressed debt, specialty financing. And the third thing that's helping net flows to the industry is the fact that fees have come down a lot. A lot of institutions used to point at the industry and say, hey, we don't want to pay 2 and 20 It's too much. But in a recent survey by um, uh, of the industry, the average management fee is now 1.38%, and performance fee is 15.9%. Uh, and that's standard hedge fund fee. There is a two-tiered fee structure uh, which is giving large institutional investors a significant fee discount on the standard fee. So a lot of these big institutional investors are able to get in at like 1 in 10, which makes it a lot more attractive. So year-to-date, you've had $150 billion pour into the hedge fund industry. The main driver of assets next year is going to be manager turnover. You know, I, I just mentioned 150 net flows in the industry. But there is a natural turnover of managers, and at if you assume the average investor holds a manager for seven years, that means that 15% of the industry turns over every year. And 15% on $4.3 trillion is $645 billion. Right. And that's, that's in an average year, and we're predicting that the turnover will be record high next year. And, Don, I guess my thought process over the last four, five, six, seven years has been most of the hedge fund money is going to the big players, the citadels of the world, the point seventy twos. I don't see as many folks coming off of Wall Street, the trading desk of Morgan Stanley and raising $500 million or, or billion on a long short fund. Are, are those days over? Where's the money going? Well, so, so I think 90% of assets are going to 5% of funds. And I do think a disproportionate amount is going to the largest managers. And I think that's bad. I mean, when you look at the uh, performance of larger managers versus smaller managers over long periods of time, larger managers underperform. You know, there's a, a, a hedge fund index called the HFRI index. And that index uh, shows performance for hedge funds that are equally weighted. So every hedge fund uh, is weighted the same size, and they also have an asset-weighted composite. And if you look at performance over the past uh, or year to date, uh, the equally weighted one is up 10%, and the asset-weighted, which is dominated by the largest, is up only 6 So large hedge funds have significantly underperformed. Over 12 months, large hedge funds have underperformed by 8%. They've underperformed by uh, 4% over three years. So what happens is a lot of people like to invest in the glamorous hedge funds right. that are the largest, and they get way too much assets, and their great security ideas get diluted over a larger asset base. So the best diamonds in the rough are not the largest hedge funds typically. Hey, Don, thanks so much for joining us. We always appreciate getting uh, kind of the latest on the world of hedge funds, capital raising, where the money's going, strategies. And we always get that with Don Steinberg, C CEO and president of Agecroft Partners, based in the former capital of the Confederacy, Richmond, Virginia, home of the University of Richmond, Spiders, my alma mater there. So uh, Don uh, giving us the latest there on hedge funds. You know, I kind of looked at the hedge fund business when I left Wall Street, and I said, boy, that's a young man's game, and it is a difficult game. And the folks that make their living there, I think, uh, 
generally earn it. It is a tough game, but a lot of successful folks there. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.